Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney. We are deep into Vayikra at this point. The book of Leviticus is full of regulations for the priestly class. So we have lots of lots of paragraphs, lots of sections of Tzav and now Parshat Shemini in the week that we're anticipating that have us reading about the expectations of God as they're supposed to be conveyed by Moses to his brother and to his brother's sons as to the ways in which they are expected to behave and the things from which they are expected to refrain. I'm going to start in the same place where I intend to end, which is to say that it's important to note that what we're about to learn about is not by far the only restriction given in this long section, this long chapter, as the chapter divisions are later and Christian divisions. And it's not even the only set of restrictions that has given to it specifically the restrictions that are punishable by death or rather come with them with a threat of death of some sort. So if you were to look back, if you have still a Hebrew Bible or a Chumash in front of you and it interests you, you could start at the beginning of chapter 10 and you would see that there are all sorts of things that the sons the sons of Aaron were called upon not to do. Moshe calls Mishael and Elsaphon. Those are great names you do not hear often enough these days. Sons of Uziel, also a great name, Uzi, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, come forward, carry your kinsmen away from the, uh, from the front of the sanctuary to a place outside the camp. They come forward, they take them out of the camp by their tunics as Moses had ordered. And Moses says to Aaron and to his sons, Eleazar and Itamar, the ones we know a little bit better, and yet, do you hear that many Itamars? Not so many these days either. And he says to them first, don't uncover your heads, don't rip your clothes, because you might, the lotamutu, because lest you die, the lotamutu, the al kol haida yiksofachem kol beitisrael yivku et hasrefa asher saraf adonai. Because, but your kinsmen, all of Beit Yisrael, will bewail the burning that God has wrought. What is the burning that God has wrought? What is the burning that God has wrought? I'll give you a hint. So, wh- what is it? What is it? What is it that that? What is it that mo- that Elazar uh, and Itamar? What is it that Moshe is saying? Don't rent your clothes. Don't bury your heads. What is, what are they being warned about in this moment? Not to go about doing lest they die. 
the hint is that Aharon has just silenced himself. Ayudom Aharon. What's the moment that he silences himself from? Right. Nadav and Avihu, their brothers, Aaron's two sons, have just died because they brought strange fire before the Lord. So Shmini opens with this strange fire. But there is this sentence. I want you to know it's not the first time when we're about to encounter this phrase in our text, Velo Yamutu, that let, and they shall not die or lest they die. It shows up first here. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do that lest you die. This, he, he's warning them. He's saying you shall not do this and either you'll be punished this way or lest you die. All we know is it's velo yamutu and, and you will not die if you do not do these things. It's consequential. That's all we know. It is a little bit confusing. I think that it's a little bit um, opaque of a translation, and that's why I wanted to pay it. That is another reason I wanted to point it out. So now, oh, Fran has a question. Right. There, Fran is, is noting that they're being told that if they go about doing the normal, what would have been considered typical mourning practices for their brothers in this scenario, they will, they will, perhaps face death themselves. I won't get too deeply into this, but it is likely the case that we are supposed to understand this through the lens that their death was warranted. It's likely that we're supposed to understand it in that way. It might also induce chaos. There are all sorts of reasons why it might be the case. But either way, we have this idea that Moshe sometimes has the responsibility to teach his brother and his nephews, this priestly class, there are things that you're not supposed to do. And not only are you not supposed to do them in the moment, but it's important that you not do it now and not for all the generations because it's going to have consequences for you and for others. And that's where we're starting our learning from. So I pulled out a set of a few verses that End this section, the section that has within it from the beginning of Parshat Shmini, the death of the sons of Aaron, ends that chapter, this, this 10th chapter, again, the chapter divisions are later, but this section of our Parsha ends with the following set of verses. Yayin v'shechar al Wine and other intoxicant you shall not drink. Atah. Uvanecha itach, you or your sons with you. Bivoachem el ohel moed, in your going into, in your coming into the tent of meeting, velo tamutu, there's the phrase, and you shall not die, you will not die, or lest you not die, consequently. Chukat olam ledorotechem, this too is a repeating trope, in Vayikra, particularly from Moshe to the priestly class. This is a law, a chok, olam forever, lidorotechem, unto the generations. It's not just for now, it's always. Ul havdil bein hakodesh uvein hachol. That should sound familiar. We're going to be doing it in about an hour, right? And to differentiate between the holy and the profane. That sounds like Havdalah, right? The rabbis are going to have a field day with the connection of the last verse and this verse. 
is a very interesting place to go in the text. All the Havdil and to differentiate between the sacred and the whole. I'm going to leave that untranslated for now. Uvein hatame uvein hatahor. And the ritually ready or pure. Uvein hatahor. Sorry, the unready and the, and the ready, the tahor. Ul horot et bene Yisrael. And you and to teach the children of Israel et kol hachukim. That is all of the laws. Asher diber Adonai alehem beyad Moshe. All of the laws that God said to you by the hand of Moshe. The rabbis of our tradition, going back thousands of generations, want to know why these three verses are connected to each other in this way. They think that it's a strange sequence of verses. What strangenesses do you see that you think they picked up on? Or what strangenesses do you pick up on in this sequence? What are your inciting questions here when you see this? What pops up for you? Great. Joel Grossman says, or rather asks, what is the connection between the first verse and then the next verse? What does a restriction about intoxicants have anything to do with this hook of a verse that begins with a vav, ul havdil, and to distinguish? What does one have to do with another, which seemingly is supposed to be linked to the next verse because we have this linking vav there? It seems to be a vav of connection, one verse to the next. So what does that have to do that those intoxicants with and the distinction between the sacred and the profane? Good. Anybody else have any questions about wine and priests? I have questions about wine and priests. How exactly are priests supposed to go about doing all the things that they're doing without imbibing any kind of intoxicants. Are there not any kind of wine or intoxicant-related rituals? What, it's, a, it's a law for now and all time that they're not supposed to touch any sort of intoxicating substance, and yet it does seem that there are a number of offerings some of which are given to some of the priestly classes that involve what I would think suggest the imbibing of intoxicating liquors. I have some questions about that. That would be my inciting question. Anyone else have any questions from these verses before we find out what Ibn Ezra and Chiz Kuni have to say about this? Rosemary has something. So Rosemary wants to know, like, is it exactly a suggestion that they drink wine? Is it that they shouldn't come drunk? It doesn't say that don't come drunk, though. So my question back to you, Rosemary. Rosemary is saying, well, maybe it's that they're not supposed to come drunk, but not to, t- but uh, and not just that they're not supposed to drink. So then, why does the verse say, "Yain v'shechar al wine and other intoxicating drinks? Don't drink them, right? So my question is, why, why, why say that and not say don't come drunk? Right? The Torah is so precise in its language. So why why this language? And I think the rabbis have uh, have both your idea in mind 
and my question in mind. I think both of those are live for them in the following conversation. Okay. I think they agree with you and I think they still have my question in mind, which is, so then why didn't they say that? Right. Why didn't they say don't come intoxicated? So they have, they have ideas and they have questions. So let's take a look at what Ibn Ezra has to say on the matter. So Ibn Ezra immediately, I'm bringing him first because what I like is that Ibn Ezra, you can always tell what his interests are by seeing what his, what, what his hook is, what word got him in to the sentence. So the word that's his inciting word, that's his hook, is Vishekhar. He wants to know why it's Yain Vishekhar, why it's not just all drink, right? Why specify Vishekhar? What is it? that that adds to the verse or that that's specifically giving to us in this moment. So he says, okay, what drink are we talking about? It doesn't say that on the page, but that's what he's asking. What drink exactly are we talking about? That's the question he's going to try to answer. The kind that's made from any kind of wheat, which would be beer, yeah, okay, Dvash or honey. Anyone ever had, yeah, like some sort of a mead? Oh, it's good stuff. It's very interesting. There are other honey liqueurs too. Odvash, um, oh, tmarim, date liqueur. Super interesting, right? Ki hayayin mashchit hadaat lishotav vitarbulo hadvarim. Because wine destroys the reason of the one who imbibes it. And that person, they mix up things. They confuse things. Al-Kain will have deal. That's why, says Ibn Ezra, you get the next verse, will have deal. Ki ata kohen gadol deal bein makom hakodesh uvein achol so he says a few really interesting things first. He says that's why we get the next verse that says, so that it says, well, you will know where it's appropriate to drink. It's not that you can't drink at all. It's specifically bevoachem et ohel moed. And you will know to differentiate between the places, I'm going to be really clear here, the places, says Ibn Ezra, that are Kodesh and Chol. That's one idea Ibn Ezra has. The priest will know how to differentiate between the places that are Kodesh and Chol and know not to do it with, that's the implication there, know not to get all shikard, all exactly from Shechav, know not to get inappropriately inebriated before going to those places of Kedusha, of sanctity. Oh, or Ibn Ezra says, there's something else we should be aware of. You should know that chol is connected to the word chilul. And what is chilul but desecration? And so it's possible, he says, it's just a little hint he gives us here, that 
this language here, this chilul, it's also saying that what it's differentiating between is times, not just places, but also times, being Kodesh the whole. We're going to get back to that idea too. Also, that a priest would know the difference between when it was appropriate and when it was not appropriate to become inebriated. Any thoughts on that? Anyone like that explanation? Anyone not like that explanation? Using that Ulahav deal to explain, well, it's not that they can't never touch it. It's just that they'll know when it's appropriate. They'll know where and they'll also know when. Okay, Bob has a question. Mm-hmm. So Bob's question is, what exactly does it mean don't drink? Right, it doesn't mean touching your lips or doesn't mean pouring it down. This is the problem that our rabbis had with the Torah. How do you live out the Torah? And it's in many excavated layers. How do you live it in their times? How do you live it then later in in uh, post-temple times, right? In in exilic times and in out in in outspread out in the world and now in contemporary times. How in the heck do you live it out? Because it just says don't drink it, but that seems very un unspecific. Okay. I agree. It's I, I the question lingers, Bob. Okay. The Chizkuni, though, has another thought about this. This gets a little closer to Rosemary's idea. Okay. He says maybe it's not about the priest knowing where or when to drink. Maybe it's about something else. He's gonna go to the parish of Rashi. Derech Shacharot. Knowing the way of how one gets drunk. Okay? Uh, interesting. Kelomar. The Shiur Kadeshacharot, as it's written in Masechet Kritut, in this one parak, Amrulo Rabbi Eliezer, Omer, Yain Veshechar Altesh, Shalo. Hang on, I don't want to start here. Oh no, okay. Shalo, uh, no, yes. Shalo to Shehu Kaderech Shechoroto, Ha. Im hapsik bo o im natan litocho mayim kol shehu pator. So he says, what happens is that in the Talmud and tractate Kritut, Rabbi Eliezer brings an understanding of this verse in which he says that it do, it means don't drink the wine in a quantity where it's going to make you drunk. But what that means is, for example, that probably priests would know to mix water into their wine in the appropriate quantity, like limzog kos yain, as in the language of the Pesach Seder that we get from Mishnah Pesachim and and uh, Talmud Pesachim. This idea that we knew that if we mixed water into our wine, that that was the regular way of drinking wine, and that one would have an understanding of one's own tolerance, right? You know how much you should drink and can drink before you're inappropriately, you reach the, you know how much you should have to drink. And that, I think the inference there, which I, I love, is that's the Ben Kodesh Lechol. You know when you're being an okay person. And when you're reaching the Chilul zone, because you might know the difference between one and the other.
Rashbam, who's Rashi's grandson, takes it an entirely different direction. And I'm going to show my cards here and say, I think he's got the best take, even though it's not the last thing I'm going to teach you on it. I still think he's got the best take. I'm curious what you think about it. He says, no, you got to look at the third verse. So you got to look at the whole chunk altogether. If you look at the whole chunk of this text, if you kind of look and you peek back at the whole chunk of text, don't forget that the third verse that you get to is, Now, on surface value, the basic meaning of this verse, the shot simplest meaning of this verse, is probably to end this entire section. Remember I said to you, this is the end of a really long section of directives about what the priestly class is supposed to do. So on face value, this verse is saying, and you should go and you should teach all these laws for the for all time to all the priestly class, such that they should inherit these laws. All the children of Israel should learn these, right? But Rashbam says, no, that's not what's happening. This Ulhorot is connected to the instruction not to drink inappropriately. In other words, it's directly connected to whether or not one is preparing to teach. Ulahavdil, Ulahorot. Do you see that? Those are his inciting words. He connects those two because he sees those next two Sukim, the next two verses, starting in such an interesting way. Even Joel, you picked up on this, this idea that the, ver- the next verse started, Ulahavdil, but Rashbam takes it a little bit further. He says the next verse begins, Ulahorot. So there's a pattern being set up here that's teaching us something, says Rashbam. He says, Ulahavdil, Ulahorot. We're going to differentiate ourselves, and it's for the sake of teaching it appropriately. Uh, and Kemo Sha'amru Chachamim, as our sages said in Eruvin, in the tract of Eruvin in 64, that a judge or a teacher in a state of intoxication must not issue any halachic rulings. What I love that Rashbam does here is he's taking this teaching and he's saying, You're, you would be so worried about just never drinking, right? Don't worry about when you should drink or when you should not drink. The question isn't when you should drink or when you shouldn't drink. The question is when you've had too much to drink, where should you go and what should you refrain from doing? It's to know that If you're not in the appropriate state, if you're already inebriated, right? That's what that ruling in Eruvin is about. So you're too worried, says Rashbam, about all these other commentators, about, oh, should you drink at all? And when should you drink? And how much should you drink? Should you water down your wine? That's not what he's worried about. He says, once you've drunk, where can you go? What can you do? What are your limits? You have to know yourself. You have to know yourself. Any comments or questions on that before I teach this Gemara? It's going to be the last one I teach. Last piece. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, Rosemary has a thought. Uh, interesting. If Rosemary's theory is if we get the instruction, don't drink, then maybe we drink less, right? So if we know we're not supposed to drink at all, maybe we drink 
less because we know we weren't supposed to drink at all. So maybe we just have a little bit. There must be some legal principle that's named after that idea. Do, do any, any of the lawyers who are here know what that's called? I'm sure there's a principle that's like when you're, when you're told no <laughs> and therefore you only do it in limited quantity because you know you're not supposed to at all. So you just do it a little bit. Um, right. So. I, I like that theory, right? Because God knows us, and so we're given this full limitation, knowing probably going to violate it just a little bit. That's at least an entertaining theory. Fran has a thought. Great. Fran's point is that it sometimes is the very people who are vested with the most power who think that they're the ones who are free from the suggestion, the rule, the directive that we're not supposed to drink, and they think that they can exercise their authority when they are most under the influence that would have them, who was it who described, I, I want to say it was Ibn Ezra who had that great description of the, the person who has the, confu- no, it's the Chis Kuni, who says, it, it's going it's to cause you to have an, it, the impaired state of mixing up everything that, that you would otherwise think. It's the very people who are vested with the most power who think that their authority gives them the freedom to, to flaunt uh, those, um, that's not the word I'm looking for. To, to, to right, to, 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 uh, to say that those prohibitions do not apply to them. The Gemara that I want to bring as my last teaching is there to counter something that, even though I love the Rashbam and it's my favorite teaching on this, something that I would say is, is lacking in the Rashbam's teaching. What I love about the Rashbam's teaching is that it acknowledges, as Rosemary's thought also did, that people are probably going to get inebriated. So what we need to do is to deal with what happens once somebody gets inebriated. But the Gemara here does a beautiful thing in naming how great people in positions of authority and who hold power in places of sanctity might set them up to set themselves up to be successful and not put themselves in a position where they're going to have to make a difficult decision while they're impaired about whether or not they should be flexing their authoritative muscles or not, because that puts themselves and all the people around them in a pretty precarious position if if you drill down on that, that's a that's actually a pretty difficult situation to get in. The better scenario is not to allow yourself to get in that position in the first place where you have to be told or tell yourself, well, goodness, I'm inebriated. I really shouldn't be doing X. So this Gemara addresses that situation. How did authorities of old perhaps put themselves in this in a situation where they protected themselves and the people around them from being in that scenario, and it uses the verses to do this in such a beautiful way. The Gemara in Zavachim asks, but if the halacha, that one who drank wine, disqualifies the service, and that's derived from the verbal analogy, then why do I need the verse? Well, the deal, right? Why do I need that difference between the holy and the profane? And here's what the Gemara responds. It says, the verse is necessary according to Rav because Rav would not place an interpreter before him from the time 
when it was one day of the festival until the next day, the second festival day, because of his concern of drunkenness. And I think that the explanation here, which is just a gloss on the page of the translation, is a beautiful explanation. Rav was concerned that he would not issue a proper ruling because it was customary to drink wine on the festivals. And the verse states, and that you may put difference between the holy and the common and between the impure and the pure. And that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken, indicating that one who drank wine may not issue a halachic ruling. In other words... Zvachim, Rav, as quoted here in Zvachim, says, What does that refer to? They would say, you know what? We're going to close down the Beit Din during festival days, just in case. There's a little too much drinking. So I'm going to close with a story. I want to tell you guys a story. We were just watching Encanto in our house. You knew Encanto was going to come in, right? Everyone's talking about Bruno. And Encanto, I had to make the joke. Okay, so Encanto, this movie, it's a beautiful new Disney movie. Lin-Manuel Miranda does a lot of the music in it. And it takes place in in uh, some of the mountainside village areas of Colombia. What you may or may not know about my family is that my husband and his parents grew up, each of them, in, in Bogota, in Colombia. And... In their growing up there, uh, they each lived through different series of political turmoil all throughout the past many decades there. And I had the merit of traveling down in 2010 with Daniel, and his mom was there at the time as well. And I got to know Bogota, and it was a really amazing experience. One night when I was down in Bogota, we went out to this incredible carnival of a restaurant. It was amazing. It's a place that's known for its whole fried fish. It was out of this world. It was like a whole place that was built out of tchotchkes. It was colorful. It was, it was like, like a permanent carnival of a restaurant, just fun filled and awesome. And Daniel was particularly excited for me to try out a drink that is a popular drink in Colombia, which is a mix of a pilsner and also a popular Colombian soda that tastes a little bit like cotton candy. It's like a sweet sugary soda, but when mixed with pilsner is a really refreshing drink that's very commonly had. But when we went to order, the wait staff explained that we could not order any drinks. Why could we not order any drinks? Because it was the night before election day. That's a country that learned from laws like this and put it in action. Okay? Not saying it works perfectly, (laughs) but the country is doing a lot better than it was 20 years ago. But what I want to say is that it's not enough, though it's very important to know once we're in a place not to be making great decisions, it is really important to know and to surround ourselves with people who can say, hey, you're not in a place to be making great decisions. But even better is if we set ourselves up to make that havdalah between a time when we could be making good decisions and a time when we're unlikely to be making good decisions. 
And even better is when people who are in a position of authority do something that is for that is relatively benign for society that puts everybody in a position to make the best possible decisions that they can make for themselves when they're all in a position where they have to make an important decision of authority, like a, dem- a democratic society that's exercising authority democratically. So there you go. That's Parsha Shmini. And I look forward to more laws about the priesthood coming in the coming books of Vayikra. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.